0: Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. Should be like the second page in your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And and let me begin this morning with something on which we all agree. The Bible is the holy word of God. Amen? Right? I mean, and I realize... Telling the church the Bible is the holy word of God is like walking into a McDonald's and announcing, hey, the french fries here are amazing. I mean, everybody knows that, right? That's why they're there. So I get that. But I think probably in the, the, the time and the day that we're kind of living in, I think it needs to be said a little more often. Our God, the creator of heaven and earth, revealed himself and his name, and his character, and his will, and his ways. He gave all of that to us in the Holy Scriptures. And as a church, we stand on that. That the Bible is the guide for all of God's children. We're never going to shy away from the fact that the Holy Scriptures are intended to guide God's children and all disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not backing down off that. At the same time, we feel just as strongly that it's very important how we read the Bible and how we interpret the Scriptures. The Bible is a story. It's not a constitution. It's not a book of laws. One of our problems is that over the past decades and centuries, we have read the Bible like it's a law book. Law books are boring. Who reads a law book except lawyers, right? The only reason anybody would ever have to read a law book is if you find yourself in trouble or if you're trying to prove somebody wrong or yourself right. The Bible is a story. It's the story of God. And God gives it to us. It's handed to us by the inspired spirit of God in order to capture us, to enthrall us. If the Bible is boring to you, you're not reading it right. One of the worst things that's ever happened to the Bible, one of the worst things that's ever happened to God's people is that in the middle of the 16th century, the church got really smart, too smart for its britches, and decided to categorize the Bible and chop it all up into chapters and verses. And since that happened, we have been conditioned for the past 450 years to read the Bible like a reference book instead of a novel. We study the Bible, we consult the Bible, and we use concordances and cross references, and we quote book, chapter, and verse like we're reading an owner's manual to a car or an employee handbook. That's not the Bible. The Bible is the story. Of God. It is one epic, grand, sweeping narrative of who God is and what He's doing in this world. And we've been talking about that in here and also in our adult Bible classes for the last couple of weeks. That if we'll see the Bible as the story of God from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, it will help us better connect all the dots in Scripture. It will help us more accurately interpret God's will and God's purposes for us and for the world. And it will better help us identify. Seeing the Bible as the story of God will help us more easily see ourselves in the narrative. So we can put ourselves in that story and we can learn our lines and we can play our parts. Now last week we looked at Act 1, the creation Genesis 1 and 2, the the pattern of the kingdom of God. God the creator speaks into nothing and he creates everything, the heavens and the earth and everyone and everything in it. And it's good, it's very good. He says so. God forms this perfect world for the people he creates and for himself. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we've got God and mankind living together reigning and ruling together, taking care of the very good creation together, living in perfect harmony, living in perfect communion with each other. Now, today, act two, the crash, the perished kingdom. All stories have something that goes wrong, the conflict, right? The the thing in the drama that messes everything up and has to be fixed. That happened in God's story and in yours. Let me ask you this. Why do people have babies? Seriously, I I think that's a fair question. Why do people have babies? Especially on a day like today, like for the first time ever, we haven't dismissed our youngest kids to worship, and they're in here with us today. Some of y'all are asking yourselves, why did we have this baby, right? If you've got a kid in here who normally isn't in here for the sermon, like like every kid in here, from five years old down, would y'all just raise them up so we can see them? Every kid that's five, four, three, two, one, infant, would y'all hold them up? Seriously? I'm being serious. I want us to see all the little tiny children in here. Raise them up, real high. Raise them up. There they are. There they are. All right. As adorable as they all are. Why'd you have them? Why would you have these kids knowing that these kids are going to break your heart? They're going to rip your guts right out of your chest. Can I get an amen from anybody who's raised teenagers? Amen. Amen. They're going to kill you, these kids. I don't understand it. Because I look at you parents, two rational, logical, right-thinking, clear-eyed people. It appears that you really like each other. You really love spending time together. You like each other so much, you you give each other rings and you make these solemn promises before God and before all of your friends and family. Why in the world would you bring a baby into that and mess it all up? Why? Now, I could cut you some slack for the first one. People tell you stuff, but you don't know. But then a lot of people have a second kid on purpose. How slow of a learner are you? Seriously, it's awful. Why do you do it? Why do we have babies? Because we want to love them. Right? I know you. I know myself. The love and the life and the joy that you share with your spouse, there's so much of it. You want to share it with somebody else. You want to create and share the love and the life and the joy. I know this question has come up. If it didn't come up last week in your Bible classes, I know it came up this morning. Why would God create the world when he knew it was going to go south? Why do people have babies? God knew the sadness. He knew the heartache. He knew the trouble that was coming. But he believes it's worth it. Just for the chance to love us, it's worth it. We believe it's worth it as parents. So does our Father in heaven. So God's very good creation goes foul. Okay, how do do things go wrong? Well, the same way it happens today. The children are easily misled. God creates us perfectly. He loves us perfectly. But then the devil comes in with his stack of lies. And the lies the devil used in the Garden of Eden are the exact same lies he is still using today, and they still work. The devil has never had to buy new tools. Genesis 3, start uh, with me in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. I wish we had more in Act 1, don't you? I wish it wasn't just Genesis 1 and 2. I I wish that, that right after those two accounts of the creation, like we had a dozen chapters of just all the really cool stuff that Adam and Eve and God got to do together while they lived in paradise. You know what I'm talking about? Wouldn't that be cool if Genesis 3 was about the time Adam and Eve went hiking up to the top of the waterfall and God was already there. He was waiting on them with a big picnic basket and they ate peanut butter and strawberry jelly sandwiches together and Twinkies you know, and they, they swam together, and, and they spent the whole afternoon together. And as they're drying out in the sun, you know, God jokes with Adam a little bit. He says, Adam, how did you ever come up with a word like baboon? Why did you name that thing baboon? And Adam jokes right back, Father, did you see what you did to that poor animal's rear end? What was I supposed to call him, you know? And they laughed together. And they drink another glass of wine, non-alcoholic wine. (laughs) And they're with each other. And they're loving each other. They're living together. And it's paradise, right? And I don't know how long this paradise lasted or how short. It should shock us that when creation ends and that seventh perfect day begins, It only takes two sentences for the snake to show up and only two questions for Adam and Eve to wobble in their trust and their faith in God and to sin. We need to be aware of how this happens. I've never ever in my life heard of a devout Christian who wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think this afternoon I'm just going to throw away my faith. I think today's the day. I'm just going to destroy my relationship with God. Church, that's not how it happens. This is how it happens. Verse 1, did God really say? Seems like an innocent question, but it's not. The snake is casting doubt on God's holy word. Are you sure this is exactly what God said? See, Adam and Eve should have bailed right there because God's instructions to them were very clear somehow they seem open to the question. It is said that Martin Luther, whenever he felt tempted, it didn't matter where he was or who was around him, what time of day, didn't matter. When Martin Luther ever felt tempted by the devil, he would shout out loud, I don't do that anymore, I've been baptized. Church, when temptation knocks on the door, you don't have to answer. Sometimes, though, before we shoo sin away, we want to take a good long look and see just what's going on. What is this thing that I'm about to shoo away? We stand at the open door. Adam and Eve should have bailed. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, that's not true. And they knew it wasn't true. God told them they could eat from any tree. From every single plant and tree in all of creation, except for one. Everything, every tree, every plant. We can eat everything. Yeah, but what about that one tree? Well, we we can eat everything except that one tree. God won't let you eat out of that tree? God doesn't want you to have any fun. No, no, that's not it. God's given us 78,000 varieties of plants and trees and vegetables and fruits. He has said we can eat every single thing there is in the whole world. Yeah, but you can't eat from that one tree. No, we can't. What kind of a God is that? Can you really trust a God who tells you you can't eat from one of his trees? That, that doesn't sound like love to me. That, that almost sounds oppressive. I'll tell people that um, the Bible makes it clear that sex is only intended for a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. And I'm having more of those conversations than I used to. And a lot of those people will tell me, why is the church so anti-sex? Why is the church and the Bible against sex? And I say, hang on a second. I work for the one who invented it. He... Designed all the mechanics. I mean, he's the one who came up with it, and he calls it very good. That blows people away when you do that. Outside of marriage, it can be devastating. In the big picture of things, sex outside of marriage will devastate you, and in the big picture, it'll devastate your community. But inside marriage, sex is a mind-blowingly awesome thing. God wants us to enjoy all of his gifts. And so he does give us instructions on how to best use them. He knows us. He made us, right? He knows what works and what doesn't. The state of Texas gives out driver's licenses to almost anybody. The state of Texas wants you to enjoy driving your car, but you can't drive on the sidewalks. Right? I can give you a toaster oven for Christmas and you'll love it. Just don't use it in the bathtub. Okay? There are boundaries. There are restrictions to help us enjoy God's good gifts to the max. And then the snake says in verse 4, he says, you're not going to die. There won't be any consequences. Well, that's a lie. That is the exact opposite of what God had said. There are always consequences to disobeying the Word of God. Don't ever confuse God's great patience with you with weakness. Sin is disobeying God's Word, period. It's a breach of trust in the goodness of God's character and of faith in the truthfulness of His Word. And it does carry consequences. And then in verse 5, The snake says, you eat it, and you're going to be just like God. Adam and Eve are attracted to that. Who's not? You can be your own God. Yeah, I would like that. I would like to be the one to determine what's right and what's wrong for me and for you. I'd like to be the one to decide what's good and what's not good for me and for you. Listen, that in and of itself is rebellion against God. God alone is good. God alone decides what's good and what's not. You and I, we cannot establish our own righteousness. We have to learn from God every day, every situation, every decision. But we're not content with that. We don't want to be dependent on God. For some reason, it's not enough for us to be loved by God and to be cared for by God. It's not enough for us to to love God and to serve God. We want to be self-sufficient and autonomous. We want the power of absolute control over our own lives. We don't want to be limited by anybody or anything, and that is sin. That's, That's act two. That's the crash. The creator of heaven and earth he makes the perfect world. He makes us. And we live together in perfect harmony. We're in perfect face-to-face relationship with God and with all people. It's paradise. And they rejected it. They ate from the tree. They blew it. We've all eaten from the tree. We've all blown it. There's not one of us in this room who hasn't sinned. We're all guilty. Romans chapter 3 quotes from several psalms when it says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Brothers and sisters, we have all lived this part of the story. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all taken huge bites out of that apple. So how bad could it be really? Well, immediately we see Adam and Eve avoiding God. They are actually hiding from God. They're afraid of their good and loving creator, and they make excuses, and and they blame each other, and they blame God, and nobody confesses. Nobody's admitting to anything because the relationships have all been busted. The trust, the, the communion here is broken, and the consequences are dire and immediate. There's now going to be a constant struggle between sin and death and the humans. Always strife. Always conflict. And because of sin, men and women are no longer equals. Their equal partnership and trust has been wrecked. The woman now wants to control the man, but the man is always going to win and dominate the woman. Always strife. Always conflict. The earth is now... Fighting back against the humans. There's, there's nothing going to be easy anymore. There's, there's no more cooperation anywhere. All of life because of sin is now just a struggle to survive. And they won't. They will die. That's the curse. It's the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. The catastrophe is real. All the creation order has been disrupted. The kingdom of God is perished. The worst part is the people are thrown out of the garden. They're driven away from the presence of God. The Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they had been taken. The overwhelming result of our sin is not the loss of the garden, it's the loss of the presence of God. The humans are no longer in God's face-to-face presence. Church, that's the tragedy of the sin. Throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, the people don't dream about regaining the Garden of Eden. They don't long for the comforts and the luxuries of the garden. They talk about regaining access to God's presence. That's what they dream about. That's what they prophesy about. That's what they pray about and hope for. When will we, will we be allowed to gain access back into the holy presence of our God? We've traded obedience to a gracious and giving God and the intimacy of living in his loving presence for isolating independence and chaotic misery. Church, that is a horrible transaction. And we know from our own experiences that sin doesn't just come in and bust stuff up and then leave. No, sin spreads. Sin grows big time, and we see this in Genesis 3 through 11. Cain kills his brother Abel over a worship issue, and he makes it very clear that he does not feel obligated to any person or any relationship that he doesn't choose for himself. Lamech murders 77 times for revenge. Genesis 6, the Bible says, By this time, the whole earth is corrupt with sin. In Genesis 11, the people of Babel, they live like God doesn't even exist. How bad could it be? It's bad. It's real bad. Act 2 is as bad as Act 1 is good. And it's still bad. Do you know how bad it is? You have said no to God and yes to the snake. You've exchanged God's Good promises for the snake's stack of lies. Maybe you're caught up in it right now. I don't know, but it's bad. Act 2 is bad. There is no good news in Act 2. Actually, there is. There's a lot of good news in Act 2. The good news is, That as bad as things get from Genesis 3 through 11, God remains engaged with his people. As bad as it gets, God never walks away. You ever feel like walking away? Honestly, you ever just, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm done. I'm done with this job. I'm out of here. I'm done with this marriage. See ya. I'm done with this church. I'm gone. You ever feel that way? Our God never feels that way. Our God never walks away. He's committed to us. He's engaged with us. He has to remove Adam and Eve from his presence, but he makes them clothes first. He protects them. He blesses them with children. He protects Cain so Cain won't be murdered for killing his brother. God saves Noah and his whole family. In the middle of the the wickedness, rebellion, and sin, you can hear God's voice. I'm going to bring from your family someone to crush the head of this snake. I'm going to bring to you someone to forever destroy the powers and the effects of sin and death. In Genesis 8, God promises, as long as the earth endures, I'm going to be here. After the flood in Genesis 9, God reordains human beings to their original call be fruitful and multiply, he says. Fill the earth, just like Act 1. You can hear God's voice, even in the worst parts. I'm still here. I haven't abandoned you, you're not alone trust me believe in me obey me live with me i'm right here i still love you i still want to live with you right now today and forever act 2 genesis 3 through 11 is a terrible part of this story and we do need to take sin and the consequences of sin we do need to take it seriously But listen to me. This is so important. Sin is not the main theme of the Bible. Okay? Hear me on this. Sin is not the main emphasis in the Christian faith. We are all sinners. Yes. And it keeps showing up over and over again. But your sinfulness is not the basic truth of who you are. The basic truth about you is not that you're a sinner. The basic truth about you is that you were created by God in his perfect image. Don't ever lose that truth. That is the truth from the very beginning from act one. Don't ever let go of that. You are created by God in his image. Now, sin happens and sin distorts that image and contradicts that image, but it does not change who you are in God. It never changes who God created you to be, perfectly made in his image, loved by God. God wants to live with you. Now, that doesn't make sin any less real. It doesn't make sin any less serious. In fact, I don't even know if we take sin seriously anymore. Have you noticed we don't really say the word sin anymore? You don't hear that word sin anymore. I feel like we say everything except sin. We say missteps or mistakes or issues or problems, you know. The only time you ever hear the word sin is when we're talking about dessert. Have you noticed that? That double chocolate fudge overboard thing is sinful lying to your wife, cheating at work, that's a misstep. That's just an issue. That's a struggle he's having. Church, I think we need to keep using the word sin. Here's why. Sin points us to acknowledge our God and points us to acknowledge our responsibilities to God. And using words like wickedness, rebellion, and sin point us to our need for God's salvation. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's redemption and restoration and reconciliation. Sin is not a problem that can be fixed by education or technology or therapy or science or optimism, right? Only God through Jesus Christ can bring us the forgiveness and the reconciliation, and the redemption, and the restoration we so desperately need. And all of that, every bit of it, happens in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Why? Because all sinned. Verse 15, If the many died by the sin of the one man, Adam, How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Verse 17, for if by the sin of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's good news. 1 Corinthians 15 sums up everything I just read from Romans 5 in a much more concise way. Since death came through a man, resurrection also comes through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ Jesus, all will be made alive. That's good news, church. That is such good news. Have you been saved? I'm going to ask that question. I'm just going to ask it. Have you been saved? If you've been baptized into Christ, if you've given your life to God through Jesus, if you are trusting Him for your forgiveness and for your salvation, then Act Two is a thing of your past. Ephesians chapter 4 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new, right? To put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ, we are created again in perfect righteousness and holiness. We are not sinners. We are saved and made good, very good, by the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. That's good news. We celebrate that good news every Sunday in here around the meal, around the table. Around the table is where we experience the forgiveness. It's where we express the salvation. It's where we give and receive the acceptance and the community. We share all of that together around the meal. We used to be sinners, but praise God, in Jesus Christ, now we're saved. We used to be lost, but praise God, through Jesus Christ, we are found. And in Christ, act two is the thing of your past, and your present, and your future is the thing that brings glory and honor and praise to God forever and ever. Amen. Stand with me, church. Let's sing together.